Lord, this morning we ask that you would strengthen, encourage, and comfort our brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing persecution around the world. We pray for those who are struggling in the countries where it's most difficult to be a follower of you. Countries like North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Libya, and Pakistan, and so many others, Lord. We pray that you will comfort, encourage them, but give them boldness to keep their faith. We pray that their lives may be a testimony of you, a testimony to their, to their friends and neighbors and family members, and also a testimony to their oppressors of what you can do through people who know you. God, we pray that these countries that our brothers and sisters in Christ live in will come to experience freedom of religion and have the ability to worship you freely and openly. We pray that even those who oppress them, those who throw them in jail, those who even kill, that they will come to know you and find the grace and forgiveness that's only available in a relationship with your son. We pray, God, that you will use their sacrifice to grow your church around the world. And we pray that all of these things, we trust, we know they will be used for your glory. God, help us to remember to pray for our larger church family, our brothers and sisters in Christ who know you. May we remember to lift them up in prayer and pray for their strength and encouragement and pray that they would know you better, feel your comfort in your presence. Thank you, God, for their example of faithfulness and for what you do through them. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. The video you saw was from Voice of the Martyrs. It's an organization that talks about Christian persecution. Another organization is called Open Doors USA. They have resources like this. It's a little guy. This one's called the World Watch List. It lists the 50 countries where it's most dangerous to be a Christian, along with specific prayer requests to think about for each of those countries. Well, on this day that we remember and we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, it seemed appropriate that the passage we're getting to in Joshua is about the unity among God's people. It's important for genuine Christians, those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, not they don't just say they know him, but they actually have a relationship with him. Anyone who has a relationship with Christ, we're on the same side. Now, in our sin, we often have the tendency to see the worst in people. We often think that others are out to get us, and it's human nature to jump to a conclusion about someone. And that doesn't make it right, but it does mean we can all relate to having made a wrong assumption about someone or having thought the wrong thing about a situation or someone's actions. The text we're going to look at this morning is a story that I don't remember hearing about uh, or reading when I was growing up, I must have read it because I read through the Bible once or twice when I was a teenager, but I didn't come to this passage and really think about it and have an impact on my life until I was taking a class on it in college. I found it very engaging, very interesting, and so much so that I had a class on the book of Joshua, and I wrote my paper for the class on this chapter. So when we were studying Joshua, I was very excited to get to this chapter. But at this point, it's about nine years after I had that class, and this story means so much more to me now than it meant then, because I've seen God act the way he acts in this chapter again and again in my life. Now I see this story's relevance and its power in a whole new light, and I hope by the end of our time together this morning that you will too. 
So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 22. Joshua, chapter 22. And we're going to read a a good chunk of this chapter. So if you're able, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word once you're in Joshua 22. If you want to use the red Bible that's in the seat back in front of you, it's on page 128 and 129. So in Joshua 22, I'm going to read from verse 10 to the end of the chapter, verse 10 through 34. And I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. So Joshua 22, starting in verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to those people of Reuben, people of Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, they sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, people of Gad and Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough? of the sin at Peor, from which we have not even yet cleansed ourselves, for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that now you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, then pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands. Take for yourselves a possession among us, Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? Wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. He did not perish alone for his iniquity. Verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, people of Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, The Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord, He knows, let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, then do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. If we did it to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, then may the Lord Himself take vengeance. No, No, but we did it from fear, that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. And so your children might have made our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. 
And so your children will not say to our children in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, then we can say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. So far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Well, when Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel who were with him, when they heard the words of the people of Reuben, people of Gad, people of Manasseh, it was good in their eyes. Verse 31, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben, people of Gad, people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, the chiefs, they returned from the people of Reuben, people of Gad and the land of Gilead. They returned to the land of Canaan to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and Gad had settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time that we have in your word. And in light of the video we just watched, thank you that we have the privilege of gathering together openly to discuss your word, to hear from you, and to worship together. This morning, may our focus be upon you, because God, I can't speak your word. I can't live for you without you and without your presence. As John the Baptist says in John 3.30, our prayer is that you would increase and that we would decrease. May we see more of you today, Lord. Lord, remind us how important it is for your people to live in obedience. Challenge us with our need for personal faithfulness. Build unity among your people around the world and your people here at East Shore Baptist Church. Thank you that unity is only possible through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's talk about, again, where we are in Scripture. Once again, we're in the book of Joshua. It's a book about God fulfilling His promises. He's being faithful to His promise to give His people their own land. He used a man named Moses to lead His people out of slavery in Egypt. And now, a man named Joshua has led them into the promised land. Joshua and the Israelites, they've entered the land. They've fought many battles, and now they have conquered this promised land. The land has rest from war. Last week, we read about the end of a kind of an allotment, a division. They distributed land among all the 12 tribes. Each tribe had been assigned their own territory. There were special cities that had been designated, some for protection of the innocent and some for the Levite priest. Every word of God's promises had been fulfilled. They are safe in the promised land. And since the war is over, it's time for the warriors to go home. 
As the two and a half tribes that lived on the east side of the Jordan River prepare to go home, Joshua gives them a reminder of obedience, a reminder of obedience. And since we didn't read it earlier, I'll read it now, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 22. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. You have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days. Down to this day, you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn, go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. In verse 5, he says, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. So Joshua blessed them, sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in the east, in the land of Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. When Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben, people of Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. If you remember way back when we started this series, back in chapter 1, we spent some time talking about these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh. When the Israelites were coming into the promised land, they were on the east side of the Jordan River. They defeated two kings in that land. And when they did that, these two and a half tribes approached Moses and asked him if they could live in that land rather than have land on the west, in the promised land. And Moses agreed that they could as long as they sent their warriors to help their brothers conquer their land on the other side of the river. When Joshua assumed command of the army, back in Joshua chapter 1, he reminds them of their commitment. He says, your wives, your little ones, your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan, but all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they shall also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession, and you shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, or in the east. They could keep their land. They could even leave their families and their possessions there, but they had to help the other Israelites find rest in their homes too. Then a verse later, it tells us that they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us, we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And as we look at the book, these tribes are faithful to their promise. They obey Joshua. They fight for him and they fight for the rest of their people. 
they pop up again when the Israelites are crossing the Jordan River. If you remember, God held back the flooded waters of the Jordan River so that his people could enter the promised land. And the very first people to cross are these faithful warriors from these tribes. Joshua 4 tells us the sons of Reuben, sons of Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, passed over armed before in front of the rest of the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. There were about 40,000 ready for war that passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. They went in front of the army. They sent thousands of warriors to help. But now we're in chapter 22. It's about seven years later, and the war has been won. And these men from Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they had been faithful to stay through all of it. Seven years they'd been fighting with their brothers. And so now they're called before their commander so they can be mustered out of the service. Joshua praises them for keeping and doing all that Moses and all that he had commanded them. They had not forsaken or deserted their Hebrew brothers and sisters. They did not leave the rest of the Israelites to fend for themselves. They kept their charge. They were faithful to their mission. One commentary I read had a little reference to the movie The Princess Bride. They did not stay on their side of the river, wave and say, have fun storming Canaan. No, they came with the Israelites across the river. They came with them. They fought and they died and their people took the promised land. But now all the Israelites had rest. And so Joshua gives them permission to go back across the river and to go home. They have kept their promise and they were free to leave. But before they go, their commander gives them a word of instruction. Joshua tells them to be careful to observe and keep the law that they had received from Moses. They were to do what it said and obey its commands. In verse 5 is a really interesting verse. He tells them five things that a proper relationship with God should include. You look at verse 5, you should see these. First, they're told to love the Lord their God. He's to be first in their affection and joy. Second, Joshua told them to walk or to live in obedience to all of God's ways. They were to conduct their lives in a way that reflected God's character, the path that he would follow. And that idea of walking in God's ways, it reminded me of a phrase that Christians used about a decade or two ago a lot. There were a lot of material that had this on it, WWJD, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus live? How would he react in this situation? This is an Old Testament version of the very same thing, Joshua telling them to walk in God's ways. Third, the tribes were to keep his commands. They were actually to do what the Lord said. It's one thing to say you're going to do something. It's another thing to actually do it. Then the two and a half tribes are told to cling to or to hold fast, hold firmly to the Lord. They're to trust God. They're to be committed to him no matter what else may try to drive them away. And finally, Joshua tells them to serve him, serve the Lord with all your heart and all your soul. God's people are to do things for the Lord. They're to participate in his work and his cause. And these words from Joshua here, they're very similar to something Jesus says in Matthew 22. Someone asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And this is what Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament hang, they're dependent on these two commandments. 
both Jesus and Joshua, they're not saying that we have to do things to earn favor with God, to earn a relationship with Him, because we have a relationship with God based on His grace alone. We come to know Him through faith and trust in what He has done. But if we've turned from our sins, if we trust in God through Jesus Christ, then there will be a change in our hearts. If we know Him, then He will change us so that we will love God. We will want to live for Him. Joshua and Jesus both tell God's people to live in that love for God. Their love for the Lord should control everything they think, everything they say, and everything they do. Jesus said it this way in John 14, 15, If if you love me, then keep my commandments. When we obey God, it's an expression of our love for him. Well, after he gives them this challenge, Joshua blesses the two and a half tribes and he sends them home. As he leaves, he encourages them to share their spoil with their brothers and sisters who stayed behind on the other side of the Jordan. Because while these warriors were fighting, there were some who were behind to watch their families and possessions. And those guards should be rewarded too. And then verse 9 tells us the people of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they start home. They had been faithful and obedient. They had fulfilled their duty. And the story should end here. But it doesn't. Something unexpected happens, and that leads to a misunderstanding. And the Western tribes respond to this action with a challenge of faithfulness. A challenge of faithfulness. So before the two and a half tribes cross the river to their land on the eastern shore, they build a large altar on the west side of the river. They most likely built it at Gilgal. That was near the place where they first crossed the river all those years before. Now we know, we've read the end of the chapter, we know they intend for this to be an altar of witness of their relationship with the Israelites on the west. But the other tribes, they see it as something else entirely. They completely miss what they were trying to do. It kind of reminded me how there's always an argument or misunderstanding at the, near the end of a romantic comedy. We've all probably seen some of these silly movies. Before the very last act of the movie, the guy and the girl have some type of misunderstanding that threatens to tear their new relationship apart. But in this case, it's not some misheard phone call that makes the problem, and there's not some local Christmas parade or whatever that's at stake if they don't get together in the end. This is much more serious. We're talking about war and people's lives. So after just sending these two and a half tribes home in peace, now the Western tribes, a day later, they're ready to go to war with their brothers. Why are they so upset? Well, back in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses told the Israelites to take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place you see, but you're only to offer them at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings. There you shall do all that I am commanding you. From their perspective, by building this altar, it seems like the two and a half tribes are trying to worship God at another place. They appear to be breaking God's law and acting in unfaithfulness to the Lord. So in response, these Israelites in Canaan, they send Phinehas, the son of the high priest, and ten chiefs or leaders from their tribes. They send them across the river with a message. And they ask the two and a half tribes, why have you broken faith with God? Why have you betrayed his commands by building this treacherous altar? Did they forget what happened at Peor? And that's talking about something from the book of Numbers. In Numbers 25, 
There were a lot of Israelites having sexual relations with Moabite women, and these women were leading them to worship other gods. God judged all the Israelites for that sin. There was a plague that killed 24,000 people. And so the Israelites knew firsthand that when one person or one group of God's people sin, the rest suffer. Sin always impacts others. Open sin harms others, but hidden sin can have long-term devastating effects. And the Western tribes knew that the rebellion on the east side of the river would bring judgment on them too. As they say in verse 18, if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow the Lord will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So in verse 19, they make a very generous offer. They say, if your land over there on the other side of the river, if that's unclean, then come over to our side and live with us. And this is generous because it would have meant overcrowding. They would have had to share land and share resources. But these tribes knew that being uncomfortable is much better than being in open rebellion against God. In their recent history, the last thing they say is they point to what happened after the battle of Jericho. In verse 20, they talk about Achan. About Achan. He stole things that were supposed to belong to God. And the sin of that one man led to the deaths of 36 soldiers, the death of Achan and all his family. Achan was the only person who sinned, one man, but he did not perish alone. He was not the only one to suffer the consequences of his sin. And that's why these Israelites from Canaan, they are so desperate to see that history does not repeat itself because of this altar. They know that sin always leads to suffering and death. Maybe not right away, but it always comes. Now, if we step back a minute and and look at what's happening here, it's kind of tough to see if these Western tribes are in the right or the wrong here. Because on the one hand, they should definitely be praised for their commitment to holiness, how serious they're prepared to be to deal with sin among their people. The law instructed God's people to immediately remove sin from their midst. These tribes knew that any sin or rebellion must be repented of. It must be turned away from immediately. There could be no compromise with sin. Because to attempt to compromise with sin is to surrender to it. The Apostle Peter reminded believers in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we should all have that type of passion for holiness. On the other hand, the Western tribes, they're kind of jumping to a conclusion here. They automatically assume that these two and a half tribes have done something wrong. Now, to to their credit, let me give them credit, they don't go to war right away. They send a delegation to find out what's going on. Still, maybe it's just me, but I feel like they could have presented their concerns in a better way. There's a world of difference between saying something like, hey guys, why did you build this altar? as opposed to what we read in verse 16, what is this breach of faith you have committed against the God of Israel? I'm reminded kind of of some words from James uh, chapter 1, verse 19, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Instead of giving their brothers the benefit of the doubt, patiently searching for the truth, They assume that these two and a half tribes have sinned and that their land is polluted. 
And hearing these accusations leads those tribes to respond with a call for unity. A call for unity. The people of Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, they seem horrified at what their brothers say. And they respond by saying three of God's names twice. They're shocked at this. Verse 22, they say, The Mighty One, God the Lord, the Mighty One, God the Lord. That's what my translation has in Hebrew. They're saying, El, Elohim, Yahweh, El, Elohim, Yahweh. They're calling on the Lord to back up their case and affirm their innocence. If they have done anything wrong, God can judge them. I feel like that this picture kind of here is conveying their attitude. They're like, whoa, 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 guys, time out, time out. We're on the same side. We know it and God knows it. Their kind of reaction, their harsh jumping here, uh, it actually reminded me of a video game I used to play when I was growing up. In this video game, you're flying a spaceship, and if you accidentally shoot one particular ally, he says in a super annoying voice, hey, Einstein, I'm on your side. And every time you shoot him, hey, Einstein, I'm on your side, which was annoying as all get out. But it did teach you very quickly, you know, maybe I shouldn't shoot that guy when I'm playing the game if I don't want to hear that. In this case, the two and a half tribes, they have very noble intentions. They didn't build this altar so they could offer sacrifices on it. It was too big for that anyway. Remember, it was a large, imposing altar. It was no good for any sacrifices. It was meant to make a point. They built it as a copy, a replica of the one true altar that existed at Shiloh. Their fear was that the tribes in the West would try to exclude them from worshiping at the true altar, because natural barriers have a way of dividing people. As an example of this, I've lived here in the Harrisburg area for most of my life, and for many years of my life, I could go a whole year and I could count on one hand the times I would cross the river to go to the West Shore. I even lived closer to the West Shore than we are here. I live pretty close. It would be like 10, 15 minutes to get over there. But in my mind, it was just so much further away than the church was or that Hershey was. In fact, it really wasn't until recently that I met someone who lived on the other side of the river that I was crossing it with a bit more frequency. (laughs) So we have bridges over that river. And even though we have bridges, we can get over it super quickly. It's still seemed like a great distance. This river was a barrier between me and over there. So I understand the two and a half tribes' concern that this river would divide them from the rest of God's people. And that's why this model altar was built. It was a reminder to Israelites on both sides of the river that they were one people with one God. It was to stand for generations to come as a constant witness and reminder of the unity among God's people. And honestly, this whole situation here kind of points to why something like this was needed. Because one misunderstanding makes the tribes in the West think that these guys are now their enemies. This large altar, it's a very good visual reminder. Now maybe the Eastern tribes could have told the others their plan, but their hearts were in the right place. Their desire is the same thing Jesus prayed in John 17, 20 and 21, Jesus prayed, my prayer is not for them, my disciples alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. It's talking about you and me who believe in Jesus now. Jesus prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. And this is the reason why, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. 
these tribes wanted to be one with the rest of God's people. And in the text, we see the delegation is relieved to hear this news. They praise the two and a half tribes for delivering and rescuing them from another war and senseless bloodshed. The reaction that Phineas, the son of the priest, has in verse 31 is powerful. I love his words. Today we know that the Lord is in our midst. By keeping his people from war, the Lord showed that his presence was with the Israelites. By guiding them, he was keeping them from pursuing the wrong path. He proved his faithfulness by preserving the peace between his people. The unity the Lord created brought peace to his children. And when the delegation returns then to the tribes in the West, the people respond by worshiping God. We see that in verse 33. The report was good in the eyes of the people, and the people of Israel blessed God. When God preserves the unity of his people, it should be an occasion for praise. And as I thought about this, I was reminded of several times over the past few years where there either was, or at least I thought there was, disunity between believers here in the church. And in many of those cases, I've been so blessed to see God work. He preserves the unity. He clears up understandings and restores people to one another. When there's a situation that looks like it's about to boil over suddenly, and then all of a sudden it's dissolved. Oh, credit can only go then, not to a person, but to the Lord. As for these two and a half tribes in this story, they name the altar witness because it is a witness. It sees, it views, it's a witness between God's people on both sides of the Jordan River that the Lord alone is God. This is a a pretty incredible passage, and I think it says a lot about the benefit of unity and civility over knee-jerk anger. It's always better to think, listen, and then think some more before we speak and act. It's important to have all the facts and to take time to listen to all the people involved before coming to a conclusion. The book of Proverbs is full of a lot of wisdom in this area. Proverbs 14.29 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he or she who has a hasty temper gets angry quickly. They exalt folly. They exalt foolishness. They praise what's foolish. And then the next one I have up there is 1727. It says, whoever restrains his words, holds back what he's saying, has knowledge. The person who has a cool spirit is a man or a woman of understanding. So let me ask, do you, are you slow to anger or do you exalt foolishness? Could it be said of you that you have a cool spirit? Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Like those 10 Western tribes, we should absolutely be ready to condemn sin. When someone is in the wrong, we should point out their error and we should hold them accountable. But there are helpful and gracious ways to point out mistakes. And then there are unhelpful ways. Saying something like, I've listened to you. I understand what you're saying and why, but I think you're wrong for these reasons. That's helpful. That's much better than you're wrong and you're stupid. (laughs) There's a difference between having discernment and being contentious. There's a difference between defending the truth, standing up for what's right, and picking a fight. One can be done with grace and charity, but the other comes from a desire to win, to be proven right. 
and it's a desire that we see in the world around us today. There's a tendency nowadays to immediately condemn people that we disagree with and to do it in the loudest and the harshest terms imaginable. You may have seen the other week there was a celebrity who got in trouble because she watched a football game next to a former president and had the audacity to call him her friend. And we may think that's absurd, but but let's turn the focus back on ourselves. How often do we jump down someone's throat the second we disagree with them? How often do we refuse to take the time to understand where another person is coming from? As Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, the purposes of a man's heart are deep waters. They're buried deep within him, but it takes a man of understanding, a woman of understanding, to draw those purposes out and understand what's going on in the heart. It takes a long-term relationship. It takes hard work to understand what's going on inside someone, to understand their motives. And sadly, I think many of us were often too lazy to do that hard work. It's far easier to just condemn someone than to love them, to treat them like a human being created by God. Now, this is harder or easier for different people. Some people are very easy to get along with. Some, you may be like me, and I can very easily see when I think someone is wrong or mistaken. And so the challenge, like someone like me, you can very easily see, at least when I think something's wrong, is to learn how to communicate truth in a gracious way. Yelling at someone when we think they're wrong, that's not helpful. Posting about someone on social media, that's not helpful. Refusing to listen or to talk to someone before making a decision, that's not a reflection of this unity that God can give. There are many benefits to all the technology we have today, but still, a direct in-person dialogue with someone we disagree with, that's always the best way to go. A conversation where we talk and we listen. Maybe they're wrong and maybe we are. We treat others with the respect they deserve as being created in the image of God. And friends, God's people should be gracious and patient with everyone that they perceive to disagree with or who they actually disagree with. We should apply this grace to all people, but especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. The verse we read before the offering was this, Philippians 2, 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul challenges Christians, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, if you participate in the Spirit, you know God, you have affection and sympathy, then please complete my joy by being of the same mind with each other, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Like the Israelite peoples of old, God's true people today are to live in unity. They're to have the same mind, the same love for each other. And that means we should always show grace to our brothers and sisters in Christ, give each other the benefit of the doubt. When Pastor Rhett Dodson, he put it this way, he said, when we look at other Christians, we love them and embrace them. Not because they wear our denominational label, Not because they rally behind our pet causes, what we care about, but we love and embrace Christians because they were bought with the same price. I know I've said this before, but you have more in common with a Christian that maybe you disagree with on almost everything. You have more in common with that Christian than with a non-Christian who shares all your opinions and interests. Our common bond in Jesus Christ should tie us together with the rest of his body, the church. 
Now, I, I know this morning that there are many people or some people who are watching us online, and I know there's people here who are guests, maybe it's your first time here or you've just been coming for a little bit, and I'm so incredibly grateful for everyone who worships with us and everyone who listens to the preaching of God's Word. But if our guest, if you'll just indulge me for just a few moments, I just want to have a few words with the members of East Shore Baptist Church. So church family, we've been through a rough year in our church, and I know that it has not been easy. I know there's things that you were or perhaps you still are confused about, and I know that healing takes time. So as we figure out what's next, as we move forward together, let's cling together in unity. The professor who taught this class on the book of Joshua, when he was teaching this passage, he said this, which I thought was really profound, in changing times, Satan will seek to divide. In changing times, Satan will seek to divide. And let me tell you, the enemy would love nothing more than to see further division disgrace the mission of this church and of our Lord. So are we going to help him or are we going to seek unity with one another? One of the main things that I've been praying throughout this year is that our church would have unity. And it has not been perfect, but God has been so faithful to answer that prayer. With everything that happened, things could have been a lot worse. But God in His abundant grace has preserved us. So members of East Shore, let's continue in that unity. Unity doesn't mean that we always agree with each other, but unity means that we love each other in spite of of our differences. We should learn the lessons from this chapter very well. We should be willing to take the time to discover the truth rather than assume the worst. We should not jump to conclusions about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our church family is worthy of our love, our respect, and our patience. So let's talk to one another. Let's graciously love each other and move forward together. But for everyone in this room, everyone listening, we can all learn from this example of unity. And one of the things I find most incredible about the Bible is how much of it is addressed to groups of people rather than to individuals. Almost the whole Old Testament is to the Israelites as a people group, and in the New Testament, there's all these letters to churches as a whole. There are very few parts of Scripture that are solely written for a specific individual. And the point of that is, seems to be that God's people are to live together in community and in unity. They're not meant to go through life alone. When God saves a person, he intends for that person to be connected to a local body of believers. If you're not a member of a local church, then please find one and be connected. If you want to know more about what that looks like here at East Shore Baptist Church, then you can talk to me about church membership. I would love to have that conversation with you. We're not a perfect church, but we are a group of people that are passionate about glorifying God by modeling Christ, extending his love, and building his church, not our church. However, all this talk about unity and things, it's it's just a wonderful dream unless you have unity with God through Jesus Christ first. If you do not know God through Christ, then you need to know him Take the time after the service or sometime today, this week, to ask me about that. Or talk to someone you know who has a genuine relationship with God about how you can have a relationship with Him. 
the kind of unity that we see in this passage that can only happen among people whose hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit. It's only when God has saved us, only when we put our trust in Him, only when He is first in our lives that we know how to love others rightly. As for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, let's commit to live in unity with one another. We should pursue obedience to God, faithfulness to Him, but we don't have to sacrifice unity to do that. We should let patience and love prevail over any misunderstanding. As the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So let's respond to this challenge and this passage, God's work of unity in our church and in our church's past, the way that the Israelites respond. If you remember from verse 33 and 22, they blessed God. They responded by praising Him for His work of unity. So let's now praise the one the one alone who can bring unity to his people because he alone is worthy.